Welcome to the Dietitian Connection podcast, a show about nutrition, dietitians, and their success stories. Through our conversations with nutrition leaders, we aim to inspire you, to connect you with like-minded colleagues, to innovate and push you out of your comfort zone, to create robust debate, to encourage lifelong learning, and to empower you to create more impact as a dietitian. Dietitian Connection acknowledges the traditional owners of land and waters this podcast is recorded on. Welcome to the Dietitian Connection podcast. I'm Brooke Delfino from Dietitian Connection and I'm an accredited practicing dietitian. This podcast is not and is not intended to be medical advice, which should be tailored to your individual circumstances. This podcast is for your information only and we advise that you exercise your own judgment before deciding to use the information provided. Professional medical advice should be obtained before taking action. For years and decades even, there has been a strong focus on calories in, calories out when talking about weight loss. Leading obesity researcher Dr Nick Fuller is on a mission to banish dieting for good and he's here today with us to bust this very common weight loss myth and why it doesn't work in the long term. Dr Nick Fuller is a globally recognised obesity expert from the University of Sydney and Royal Prince Alfred Hospital. He has degrees in exercise physiology, nutrition and dietetics, and a doctorate in obesity and weight management. His current position as research program leader within the Charles Perkins Centre at the University of Sydney involves working with government and industry to identify and develop cost-effective treatments for the management of obesity. He has a proven track record of commercialising research in this field to improve not only the health of Australians, but the rest of the globe. He's a recognised media expert, the author of three best-selling books, and has published in top-ranked journals in the medical field. Nick's work has resulted in policy change in the field of obesity and metabolic disease. Welcome to the Dietitian Connection podcast, Nick. Thank you for joining us. Thanks very much for having me on, Brooke, and thank you to the Dietitian Connection. Well, Nick, you've been a researcher at the University of Sydney for close to 17 years now. Can you tell us a little bit about your career journey and what you love so much about nutrition research? For sure. Well, time certainly flies. Uh, I did start this game a long time ago. Uh, and it's, I guess it stemmed from my father's passion, particularly around um, the influence exercise or physical activity and nutrition can have on a person's health. Uh, so going through school, it, it had me thinking uh, this is probably what I want to study post school in or sort of schooling life, uh, and that's what led me to degrees in exercise physiology, uh, nutrition, and dietetics, and then eventually my doctorate in uh, weight management or obesity treatment. And I guess that brings me to where I am today. I, I have been working here at this this I guess institution or joint collaboration between the University of Sydney uh, and RPA Hospital for yeah more than fifteen years it's it's a very enjoyable job um, especially being able to influence and and have a change or an effect on a person's life when it comes to uh, their health yeah fantastic and you clearly have a very strong interest in the causes prevention and treatment of obesity and metabolic disease so where did that stem from you sort of started in the background of the exercise side of things and how did it move into this area 
Well, it stems from, I guess, my day-to-day work. Um, when I first started in this industry, I was working uh, you know, at the forefront of, of, of patient care, working with, with patients, helping them on the health and weight loss journey. And what I came to realize was that um, this industry is full of noise, full of misleading information, and um, I could see the frustrations on patients' um, faces when they were coming in to, to see us. So they'd been on basically every diet, every fad you could think of for the last maybe year, 10 years, 20 years, 30 years, sometimes even more. Uh, and that's where our work comes into play because at Charles Perkins Centre, which is that joint collaboration between the University of Sydney and RPA Hospital, uh, we're actually researching, um, I guess, treatments for the prevention and management of overweight and obesity. So we're working with government, we're working with industry to trial and test a whole range of different things. It starts with lifestyle intervention and it goes all the way through the spectrum to bariatric surgery. But my particular passion um, and interest lies in first-line therapy being lifestyle intervention and equipping patients and healthcare professionals with evidence-based care so that they can pass that on to their health or to their patients or so the consumers or patients themselves um, can stop dieting and regain control of their health and their weight. So this is what I have been doing now for yeah, nearly two decades um, and, and trying to paint a better picture of what long-term success looks like. We're not interested in, in the short-term wins. We're about, um, I guess, educating the general public on the importance of focusing on long-term and importance of focusing on, on health, not just weight, uh, and, and as I mentioned, getting them to stop um, or break that yo-yo dieting cycle that they're often in. Yeah, fantastic. I think cutting through the noise, so, so important with evidence-based research, but also just breaking that cycle of dieting and um, looking at the long-term picture, which a lot of, um, you know, those really short-term fixes just don't do, which I think is so important. And on that note, for decades, there really has been a very strong focus on calories in, calories out when talking about weight loss. How did that start, you know, so many years ago? Yeah, this is this has evolved from the dieting industry itself. Um, I mean, we've been talking about diets for the better part of five decades, even more, sort of evolved from uh, that Atkins um evolution of a a low carb movement back in the 70s we're still talking about low carb diets today we just have renamed them remorphed them and they're still giving us that short-term success but long-term pain um now i guess addressing your question um if anyone's ever tried to lose weight you know that there's a good chance they've been told to just simply count calories measure their calories in measure their calories out and if you do that, the kilos will simply disappear. Count calories um, and burn more calories than you consume, and the number on the scales will go down. Now, it's very appealing because we're breaking weight loss down into simple mass, and this is why the dieting industry use it. They want us to think that it's as simple as following this cute, neatly packaged program. It's four, eight, or 12 weeks long. Follow the diet, restrict your calories. Um, increase your exercise or follow that strict militant exercise program 
and the kilos will just simply disappear and you'll never have to worry about your weight again. But we know that's not the case. What we're not talking about and what the dieting industry don't talk about is the long-term pain that everyone's going through. What they want us to think or what they want us to make or make us believe is that it's just that lack of willpower, that we don't stick to the diet for long enough and consequently, we go back to our old ways, and that's why the, the weight actually comes back on. Um, but there's so much more going on within our body, uh, and there's a, a whole series of, I guess, research questions there that have evolved over time that we've been looking into, and we've seen within patients' bodies um, from, I guess, not just following diets, but the long-term repercussions of, of being stuck in that yo-yo dieting cycle. So... This is, I guess, the dieting industry's reliance on, on such a simple mass formula so that it is something that's easy to follow. We get short-term success, and then they tell us that we didn't fo follow it for long enough or didn't stick to it. We regain the weight, so what do we do? We go back to the same diet. We follow it again and again and again. And there's a lot of survey data to show that we're following up to five of these diets every year. And more than often, we're going back to the same diet that we'd followed where we got the short-term success, but we put the weight back on plus the extra or plus the 10% GST, which is what I like to refer to it as. So it's it's important that we do, I guess, bust this myth because the calories in, calories out model simply doesn't work. It, there's too many different factors that we need to take into consideration when we're prescribing um, a weight loss program or more importantly, getting a person to regain control of their health and weight just never ever that simple is it i want to go into some of those those reasons um why it is so challenging in a little bit but you know i guess the question we should ask is should we ever be calculating a person's daily calorie requirements based on things like age and sex and you know activity levels do we ever have a a reason to do that quite simply no is the answer brooke um look there's a lot of online calculators, calorie counting apps, um, even as healthcare professionals, we we often use equations and they make it seem effortless. You know, they tell us to put in things like uh, our weight, our age, our sex, um, height, activity levels, okay? And then they tell you exactly how many calories we need to consume to lose weight. But it doesn't matter how accurate these calculators claim they are, they rely on averages. Um, they can't determine a person's calorie intake with 100% accuracy and they're only estimates. And more importantly, they're not taking into consideration, I guess, three main things um, that I like to, to educate patients on. And they relate to, firstly, a nutritional information panel. So when we pick up a product, that product is not accurate in terms of its energy content, Okay. Often it's very misleading and that accuracy can have up to a 20% discrepancy. And there's actually a study to show that some of the foods um, can actually report or be under-reporting by about 60% of the energy content. Okay, wow. So if you think about that across the course of the day, it's a huge amount of calories that we're not accounting for. Now, the second thing is that, and this is probably one of the most important, is that our metabolic rate that number that we like to, to dump into these calculators or how much energy we burn at rest, um, it varies enormously 
from person to person. Okay. And that's based on many factors. Um, most, in, I guess, one of the most important um, factors is actually body composition or how much muscle and fat we have, because this is what determines our metabolic rate. And it actually changes when we diet and lose weight, which we can get onto as in, in greater detail later as well. But then the last thing is that not all calories are equal. Okay, so a good example I like to give is, um, say, 100 calories of pizza versus 100 calories of nuts. Um, now, they appear at face value as the same energy content, but the way these foods are actually absorbed in the body and how they affect the body is completely different. Okay, so for example, nuts are a nutritious food. We all know this. Yes, sure, they're high in fat, high in good fats, but more importantly, we don't actually absorb a lot of the energy from foods like nuts, um, other foods like vegetables, and we don't absorb up to about 20% of those calories in nuts because that fat's stored in the in the cell walls um, and we don't break it down during digestion. So when it comes down to it, there's sort of three those three main things as to why these calorie counting apps or online calculators um, are a waste of time and why we shouldn't be using them. Yeah, fantastic. And you know, I think very, uh, very interesting about food labels as well, and that that discrepancy and that inaccuracy as well that we just don't take into account. Or I'm sure many of our clients and and patients don't don't understand that either. So great example there with nuts. Uh, let's talk about weight loss for a little bit. And we mentioned, you know, all these all these factors we need to take into account. Sustained weight loss is challenging. Let's be honest. Um, weight lost is often regained. So let's talk about some of the reasons behind this. What is going on? Why does this often not work in the long term? Yes, and I guess, again, this ties into what we are just talking about with our metabolism. Now, when we start to lose weight, and this happens at a very small amount of weight loss, actually about um, two to three kilograms of weight loss or 5% of our body weight, this is what we determine as clinically significant. When our health improves, our cardiovascular risk goes down, diabetes risk goes down, but it's also when our body goes into shutdown mode. Now, unfortunately, this is something left over from our time as hunter-gatherers. We have our ancestors to thank for this. Now, tens of thousands of years ago, food wasn't available on every corner of every block. Now, when it was available, we would gorge and we would get store and, and search um, a forage for foods that gave us best bang, bang for our buck. Now, these foods were naturally found in the environment, naturally high in sugar and fat. So when they were available, we would eat, we would, we would store, and then our body learnt to shut down during those times of deprivation when food wasn't available. Now, you fast forward tens of thousands of years, our genes haven't changed, but you put our genes in a, in a completely different environment. And it's something that we refer to as an evolutionary mismatch. Food is now available in every corner of every block. And consequently, we have a very time hard, saying, hard time saying no to all these favorite foods. And what do we do when we have a weight problem or a health problem? We react through dieting, which we alluded to at the start. But all that's going to do is then shut down our body. Our body is going to go, into survival mode because it doesn't know any better. Because remember, that's what it used to do during times of deprivation. So dieting is just deprivation, which equals shutdown. 
So the calories in versus calories out, we go back to that that formula that we're talking about. Now, of course, it works because remember, the dieting industry is prescribing this cute, neatly packaged program that's telling you to deprive yourself of food and increase your energy output. But as it as the calorie intake reduces and your weight's gone down by two to three kilos, our control systems within the body start to change. Basically, we get a whole cascade of reactions taking place to ensure that we prevent further weight loss or we slow down the weight loss and then eventually we regain that weight we lost because that's what is needed in order to survive and procreate. And again, it's due to our time as hunter-gatherers tens of thousands of years ago and we have our ancestors to thank. So whenever you start consuming less calories, your body thinks its survival is threatened. Um, it, it naturally triggers this series of physiological responses. And we know there's eight well-researched pathways that kick into gear um, to protect us against that threat. Now, that threat is weight loss. And one of those biggest changes or physiological responses taking place is a reduction in our met- metabolic rate so that we burn less energy at rest. Now, just to highlight that example, a very clever scientist um, by the name of Kevin Hall actually researched the participants um, that appeared on a very popular TV show at the time. Thankfully, it's, it's since been shut down. We don't see that on air anymore. But what he did was actually measured their metabolism before they started the show. He then measured their metabolism after they lost the weight. Now, of course, at the start of the show, metabolism is, is one number. In, in this instance, it was 2,600 calories per day. They let, then lose a significant amount of weight. You'd expect the calorie, um, sorry, the metabolic rate to decrease because they, these people are losing weight. They're losing body fat and they're losing muscle. But it actually decreases by a number that we as scientists and clinicians can't account for. So it goes from 2,600 in this instance down to 2,000 calories per day. So it's dropped by about 15% beyond the the reduction in body mass that we see. Now, the scary thing is we follow these participants up. Six years later, not only have they regained their weight, but their metabolism hasn't gone back to 2,600 calories. It's stayed suppressed, and it's even gone down a little bit further at 1,900 calories per day. So what's happening is you lose the weight, your body's going into shutdown mode, It's going down into shutdown mode by a further 15% that we can account for. And then even after you regain the weight, it's staying low. You're burning less calories at rest, which makes it even harder to keep that weight off. But more importantly, this is why people often end up putting on that plus GST after a diet. And this is why they often end up driving up their set point over time and why dieting can do more harm than good. Now, that's only one example. Remember, I mentioned that there's eight well-researched pathways. Um, there's a lot of different things going on within our body when we lose weight. This is an incredibly interesting uh, study. I, I do recall when this came out. And you just mentioned the, the set point. Can you explain a little bit more about that set point theory and, and, and why our body fights it there, I guess? Yes, the best way to think of your set point is, is sort of the weight you remember being at for a long period of time. Now, I'm talking about our adult years. Um, after we've gone through puberty, you know, a rough cutoff point is, is 20 years plus. 
it's that weight you or your patient remember being at for a long period of time. So for some people, it might be 50 kilos, others it might be 62 kilos, others it might be 135 kilos. Now, when I go on a diet, I start at 135, I then go down to maybe 120 or 115 or whatever it might be. But then these physiological responses that I mentioned start to take place, which see me go back to my set point, that weight that I'm protecting, that survival weight that I need to stay at in order to procreate and survive. So I go back to the 135 over time. Depends on how drastic the diet was. If it was really, I guess, uh, restrictive, um, I'm going to go back to my weight much quicker than something that might have been a little bit more sustainable. I don't just go back to the 135. There's some very good research out there to show that I'm actually going back to 136 or 137. I'm putting on more weight than I lost. Um, And a good piece of science to highlight that is actually uh, a data set looking at twins. Now, what they did was actually followed up twins over a 25-year period. And simply put, they found that the diet, the twin that had been dieting over their lifetime was always heavier than the twin that hadn't dieted. So these people have the same genetic material, but dieting is accelerating the person's set point in the person that's going through that yo-yo dieting cycle over their lifetime. So you might, you know, we all have a different set point. It's a, it's a weight we remember being at for a long period of time. But if you have been dieting, your patient's been dieting in this instance, what's happening is they're driving up that set point over time. So one of the best things you can do is get them off that yo-yo dieting wagon to stop further weight gain. Absolutely. Thank you for explaining that. It's a really interesting um, theory there. Let's talk about appetite a little bit because this is something I think clients and patients will talk about a lot. What role do appetite hormones play uh, in, in this equation here? A huge role. So we we talked about metabolism. Now, another big part of this puzzle or one of the physiological responses taking place is the change in our appetite regulation system. So I guess the best way to think of of your appetite system or describing that appetite regulation system to your patients is this sort of clever wiring system between um, your stomach and your gastrointestinal tract acting on your brain, telling you when and when you shouldn't eat. Now, I guess going back pre-dieting, pre-sort of Monday environment when food was available on every corner of every block. Um, now, this clever wiring system used to work pretty well. It kept most of us within a healthy weight range. And it's what we refer to as the homeostatic regulation of our body weight. So basically signals acting on our brain, telling us when we should eat and when we should put down the fork and stop eating. Then you fast forward into the Monday environment. Again, remember food's available on every corner of every block. Diets are everywhere. We have a hard time saying no to these diets. What do we do? We follow the diet, but what happens within our body? Our appetite regulation system gets affected. Now, the first thing that's happening is that our favorite foods are everywhere. So the hedonic or reward pathway is creeping in. So our patients have a very hard time saying no to our favorite foods. They keep going back for them. They smell and look good. They taste good. So they keep eating them. So energy intake 
um, goes up, and that stress on the body does see that sort of 0.5 to 1 kilo weight gain each year for someone that's not even dieting. But more importantly, just like the metabolism, the appetite's regulation system goes out of, comes, or I guess, is, is disturbed um, and, and goes out of, out of balance when you start dieting. So a good example is ghrelin. Ghrelin is the hormone that's released from your stomach acting on your brain um, when you're hungry. So when you get those hunger pangs and your stomach's sort of rumbling along, that's ghrelin telling you to go and eat. Now, when you diet, ghrelin levels go through the roof. They are telling you to go and get your hands on everything and anything so that you consume more calories. If you consume more calories, consume more energy, your weight will start to go back up. That's the body winning. It doesn't know any better. So not only does ghrelin levels go up when you start to lose weight, but just like the metabolism example, they don't go back to baseline after you regain the weight. So think of it like this. Your ghrelin levels are sitting at steady baseline. You then lose weight, ghrelin levels go up. But as the weight starts to come back on, ghrelin levels don't come back down to baseline. They stay elevated, telling you to eat more, telling you to put more energy in so that you regain the weight you lost. Now, that's only one appetite hormone I'm talking about. There's so many others. There's PYY, GLP-1, for instance, that act on your brain telling you to put down the fork. Well, those ones are switched off when you start dieting because we want to keep eating. So the brain or this appetite regulation system is very, very clever, and this wiring system is basically dooming a person for failure because it doesn't know any better. So I guess... In this instance, we, you know, we've talked about metabolism and then appetite hormones or the appetite regulation system. They are two of the most important physiological responses taking place when a person's losing weight. And they're two very good examples that you can discuss with your patients to, I guess, inform and educate them on why they haven't been succeeding long-term on their long-term weight loss journey. Yeah, painting that picture of what's actually happening within their body and, and, and you know, giving them that level of understanding is so important. That's quite empowering too. Just to summarise, I mean, we talked about a lot of different uh, things today. I guess based on the latest evidence and on your, your, you know, huge body of work, what are some approaches that dietitians can use to support their clients to maintain a healthy relationship with food. Now, that's the goal here, that healthy relationship um, with food and away from dieting. It certainly is. And the first thing is about, I guess, empowering them with the education. You know, a good way to, to do that is just some of the things we've been talking about today. And I've written in extensive detail about what's actually happening within a person's body when they're losing weight. Now, you need to be able to, you know, then empower or pass that education onto your patient. Because if you do that, one, you're going to get them, you're going to stop them dieting, okay? And hopefully then follow um, evidence-based information from healthcare professionals like yourself. That is the goal that you want, want to achieve. You've got to break that yo-yo dieting cycle because most people, particularly females, who are unfairly targeted by the dieting industry are out there trying to do something about their weight. So if you can engage them, 
The first thing is about education. Once you do that, I guess you grab their attention and you make them realize that they haven't been failing due to that lack of willpower. They've been failing due to these physiological responses taking place within their body. So that's one body of research that you know we look at extensively. But the second thing is about getting a person to regain control of their health. Now, this is all about health, not weight. Because, you know, we we fixate particularly at the primary care levels on on factors or indices like BMI. But again, these things are nonsense because there is no need to be trying to achieve these, I guess, predefined um, goals according to things like body mass index. It's more important to be able to pass on information to a patient that will see them improve their health and may see them lose a few kilos, which are clinically significant, and importantly, keep them off long-term. That will see them significantly reduce their risk of cardiovascular disease, heart disease, and other metabolic disease like type 2 diabetes. Fantastic advice. Uh, Thank you so much, Nick, for your time today and for um, explaining some of those those processes in our body, um, busting that myth for us about calories in and calories out and giving us some really, I guess, practical approaches on on what we can do um, with our clients and with our patients, you know, starting today in practice. So thank you for your time. I really enjoyed our chat. To get all of the links and resources we discussed in this episode, you can go to dietitianconnection.com slash podcasts. And if you'd like to support the Dietitian Connection podcast, please leave a review and a rating on the Apple Podcasts app. Tell us what you thought of this episode, what you learnt, and share your guest requests for us to consider for future episodes. We value hearing from you and we really appreciate your feedback. So please, please hit that review button.